0: Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we are very thankful uh, that everyone in this room, Lord God, is here because of a mother. Um, and uh, we can say that with a, a fairly high degree of certainty. Um, so we are very thankful for our moms. And we ask that you would bless the, the mothers in our membership Father, it's a it's a challenging job at times. It's a rewarding times uh, a job at times. It's a it's a mission. Uh, There are seeds that are planted between a mother and her children, that sometimes the the fruit of those seeds are are not um, seen to come to fruition for a long long time. And so we want to pray that you would bless them with continued wisdom and insight. That you would fill them with all wisdom and understanding. Uh, in the raising of their children, that they might, with uh, steadfastness and patience, give glory to you with thanksgiving uh, for being, um, given the, both the wonderful privilege and joy and responsibility of, of being a mother. And we ask that you would do this because you are a good and gracious God, and because our Lord himself um, was born of a virgin, whom you blessed and uh, enabled to do uh, what you called her to do. Father, we also thank you for the privilege of glorifying your name. We sing, Lord, a a wonderful song. We even see it in the Psalms. And at times, Lord, we only say the words without perhaps letting them settle uh, into our heart and our mind that through us you can be glorified. Uh, we who are at times rebellious and sinful, selfish and self-centered, we who through our own oversight may may not choose to glorify you, and yet uh, you have made us such. You have made us your vessels uh, to bring forth your glory. And so, Father, we pray now that as we hear your word, we would... Take to heart the, the serious calling, not only of receiving it, accepting it, understanding it, applying it, but then of teaching it as well. But This is a word uh, that is given to, to pastors and to shepherds and to leaders, to parents as well, to accurately and faithfully communicate that institutional memory that is contained and is itself the gospel. So we ask that you would do this because you are a good and gracious God And because it is your delight to receive our praise and to be glorified by it and in it and through it. So we ask and pray these things for that cause in Jesus' name. Amen. If I sound a little subdued, it has nothing to do with the weather or the day. Um, It's still (laughs) sort of residual effects of of a, a sinus infection. So breathing at times is a bit labored. So... Um, I appreciate that. Let's uh, let's hear what Zechariah says. This is following uh, Zechariah 10, of course, and the prophet says, "Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen; for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined." The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Thus says the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished, and those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord, behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their land. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders, and I took two staffs, one I named Favor and the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out, my, as my wages, thirty pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord, to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, Union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd, <clears throat> For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock! May the sword strike his arm and his right eye, let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. Apologies, Mom. Not exactly a Mother's Day text, I understand. Um, And and compared to the the sunny optimism with which Zechariah 10 came to an end, Zechariah 11 comes at us like a uh, low-pressure weather system with uh, cloudy skies and ever-darkening clouds. Um, For those who would prefer perhaps a musical... Uh, analogy. Uh, Zechariah 10 uh, ends very much the way that uh, Rossini's uh, William Tell Overture ends. And then you're off. Zechariah 11 begins like Beethoven's Symphony number five in C minor. It's heavy. The subject matter is intense. And it's dramatic. And the sudden tone, the sudden change in tone, it's, it's deliberate because it's meant to draw attention to the fact that while God holds us accountable for the way that we live in light of his grace, he holds those who are entrusted with that responsibility to teach accurately and faithfully the institutional memory that he has transmitted to them through his word. They are held to a much higher standard of accountability. The text itself, Zechariah 11, is really directed at the leaders, both political and religious, within uh, Israel. God cares about the way that we live. Because the way that we live, we have sung about it. The way that we live enables us to glorify God, and he is glorified through us when we live correctly and rightly and accurately according to his word. When we keep God's commands this is true from the garden of eden to the garden at the end of the age in revelation when we keep god's commands we flourish we experience his his blessing and his provision Keeping God's commands also increases our desire to know Him, to love Him, to worship Him, to serve Him, and even to tell others about Him because we have a good and gracious God. And as we keep His commands, we are empowered to not only flourish, but to flourish in sharing that good news. It matters how we live because how we live honors God. At the same time then, when we get to Zechariah 11, Those who are entrusted with the responsibility of teaching God's people how to live must themselves also honor God by the way that they live. And the way that they can do that is by teaching accurately and faithfully the very commands that they themselves are not only instructing but are living by. When they fail to do that, there is a heavy price to be paid, and that's what Zechariah 11 is all about. It's because God holds those that he is entrusted with the responsibility of teaching his people how to live, he holds them to a higher standard of accountability. I quoted last week from the letter of James in the New Testament, in James three one, where the brother of the Lord says, let not many of us become teachers, because we will incur a stricter judgment. So there's a serious responsibility that we as pastors have and are entrusted with to instruct Accurately and faithfully, and communicate that to you. And so, if you're looking for a, a big idea for Zechariah 11, it's simply this that when we fail to teach God's commands accurately and faithfully, uh, we will be judged more strictly. I think there's, an, on a broader application, it goes beyond just pastors and teachers. I think it also goes to parents as well. But in, the, in a more specific case, we're going to just limit ourselves to you know, shepherds, pastors, overseers, but parents, pay attention because what is uh, said here is very important in terms of accurately and faithfully not only communicating the truth of God's word, but then living it as well. Um, We're responsible for a consistency that our words and our actions meet. And so if we're going to unpack uh, Zechariah 11 with that big idea that those who fail to teach accurately and faithfully will be judged more Strictly, we're going to look at three basic things. There's the precise character of God's judgment. There's the conflict that is created by bad leadership. And then there are the consequences of bad leadership. And you see the, the verses there. So let's look at the, that first part, the, the, the precise character of God's judgment. It starts with this oracle um, that Zechariah delivers to Lebanon and Bashan, these two territories that are on the northern boundary of Israel, And there's a lot of symbolism um, throughout Zechariah, certainly in the prophets, and there's symbolism here as well because uh, Lebanon and, and Bashan uh, symbolically represent the, the two divided nations of Judah and Israel. I say that because when you look at the area, the region of Lebanon and the region of Bashan, if you had a map, I don't have one here, but you would have Lebanon would be on the, uh, the west side of the Jordan River and Bashan would be on the east side. So these two territories divided by the river symbolically represent the, the two nations, Judah and Israel, that are divided. And uh, so God pronounces his judgment upon these two regions with this opening announcement. Open your doors, O Lebanon. Uh, that, you know, that uh, fire may devour your cedars. If you're um, familiar with your Old Testament, if you're familiar with your psalms, that opening line, open your doors, may um, catalyze a, a, a memory, it may bring to mind a, a psalm, a psalm of David, Psalm 24, particularly Psalm 24, verse 7, where David writes, open up, your doors, uh, O Jerusalem, that the king of glory may come in. However, there is a, a distinct difference between what David says in Psalm 24 to the doors of the city of Jerusalem and what Zechariah says to the doors to the region of Lebanon because in Psalm 24, David commands that Jerusalem to open its doors that the king of glory, who is the Lord strong and mighty, that he may come in, represented by the Ark of the Covenant, bless the city and the region. In Zechariah 11, he commands Lebanon to open its doors so that the strong and mighty Lord, the, the King of Glory, if you will, may judge the nations. And God's judgment against Lebanon and uh, Bashan symbolically represents his judgment against the leaders, both religious and political in Egypt. Remember, this, in some ways, this is connecting us back. This brings us back, right? There's a consistency in Zechariah's message. It brings us back to the vision of the flying scroll in Zechariah 5, where having brought his people into the land, God is now going to purify them by separating the wheat from the chaff. He's going to separate good leaders from bad leaders good shepherds from bad shepherds. That's what's happening here. There's a sifting process that takes place. So as God judged the nations for plundering his people, he is going to now judge their leaders for failing to be good leaders. And so he does this very specifically. He targets those elements, those parts of the culture, if you will, of Lebanon and Bashan that are very important to them because these trees the cypress tree, the oak tree, um, the cedar, the cedars of Lebanon and all of that, uh, they represent the economic economic prosperity and the influence of those regions. On the one hand, those trees, if you want to carry the metaphor forward, um, represent the arrogance, uh, the pride, the greed, and the idolatry. without tripping too badly, it's why on 9-11, the world trade centers were destroyed. Because to the, the terrorists who destroyed them, those represented the epicenter, if you will, of America's decadence and economic idolatry. So you destroy that. That's also why they went after the Pentagon and the Capitol. Those symbols of power, once they are destroyed, represent a form of judgment. And so God is doing that very specifically here as well. The trees also represent, if you will, all of the the elite who are at the pinnacle of the the political, social, and economic pyramid. If you could stand watching it, uh, you saw this at, you saw this on display at the Met Gala, right People just show up like inflation's eight and a half percent you know the economy 's tanking but let's have a party, right? That kind of attitude is what God is going after here. The sort of, the, the folks that say, let him eat cake. Well, they can't afford cake. Well, let him eat cake anyway. That's uh, the aim here. He, he aims his judgment, does God, with a, a laser-guided accuracy at the things that we as human beings value most. our pride, our self-reliance and the misguided belief that we are the measure of all things. Uh, It's sort of the same way it doesn't happen on Facebook, it never happened, right? If it didn't happen to me, then it really didn't happen. That kind of uh, character, or that kind of judgment is taking place here. Now, if you're a history person, you know that uh, scholars will tell you that the Roman army fulfilled this prophecy of the annihilation of the, of the northern territories there. The uh, Vespasian and his legions recaptured the Roman garrison and devastated all of that. Um, but God's judgments are not just limited to history written long ago. Because certainly in our own nation's history, I've alu- already alluded to what happened on 9-11, you could see a hand of God's judgment in other historical events in our nation's history going after our economic pride, our idolatry, and things like that. I think of the stock market crash of 1929, which kicked off the Great Depression. Some of us are old enough to remember the recession of the 1970s, gas lines, right? Gerald Ford wearing buttons that said wind, whip inflation now, right? Um, closer to home, there was the, uh, the housing crash in 2008, and you had all of these Financial institutions on Wall Street that were going under, that were thought to be solid, right? When Goldman Sachs collapsed, all of that panic that happened, the, the riots that took place in the summer of 2020, and even the, the events of January 6, 2021. You could say that those are, in a sense, elements of God executing judgment upon a nation for pride, arrogance, idolatry, that kind of thing. Uh, Every one of those events that I just referred to can be traced back to bad leadership, to arrogance, to pride, to greed. Bad leadership will always have and produce a negative effect on a community, on an organization, and a nation. And God, in giving Zechariah this prophecy, he wants to his nation, he wants his people to avoid having that happen to them. And so he tells Zechariah to do something which for a prophet is unusual. He, he, he asks him to engage in a, another acted out prophecy to become a shepherd for the flock doomed to slaughter. We've seen an acted out prophecy before back in Zechariah 6 where Remember, he is told to make a gold crown and place it on the head of Joshua the high priest, symbolizing the fact that there is a coming priest who is uh, one who would be king as well. So here's another acted out prophecy where God, through the behavior and actions of Zechariah, is going to illustrate what's going to happen uh, to his people. We've seen also, I've alluded to other acted out prophecies, Ezekiel laying on his left side for 390 days and then laying on his right side and all of that. Well, the reason, why does he do this? Why does he tell Zechariah to become a shepherd to basically care for a flock that's doomed to slaughter? And it's, it's, the reason is stated in the verses 4 and 5. This is because the, the leaders of that flock of Israel don't care for them. They Rather than nurture them the way a shepherd does, rather than lead them beside still waters rather than make them lie down in green pastures, rather than restore them, they have, con- they have converted their own people into a product, into a kind of merchandise that they can profit from. So you have merchants who are cheating them for profit, you have politicians who are charming them to gain more power, and you've got religious leaders who essentially turn a deaf ear to their pleas for help. we we see this come about full circle in in the Gospel, particularly Matthew uh, chapter 23. You have an image, perhaps, of Jesus being meek and mild, gentle and lowly. We get that in Matthew 11 for sure. But read Matthew 23, and see the Lion of Judah roaring in order to protect his own when he takes on the Pharisees with a series of woes. And chief among them is the fact that he, you know, he castigates the Pharisees for tithing their mint and their cumin, you know, but hoarding for themselves their own wealth. And my, my personal favorite, simply because it's so arresting, we don't ever imagine Jesus saying like this, uh, something like this, when he tells the Pharisees, you travel the whole world to make a single convert. And when you do, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. Just devastating. But take that attitude that Jesus criticizes severely in the New Testament, and that's what's going on here in Zechariah 11. And to draw attention to how badly these leaders, religious and political and social even, are doing this, the only imagery, the best imagery that God can communicate through Zechariah in taking up the tools and equipment of a shepherd, is the imagery of a stockyard where sheep are led to be slaughtered. And shepherds don't do that. You don't, as a shepherd, slaughter your entire flock. You know that as a shepherd you're raising your sheep, obviously to gather wool, but a certain number of those sheep will be slaughtered. They have lived beyond their years of reproduction. They have gotten old And they are no longer fruitful, so you then slaughter. But you don't slaughter the entire flock, rams, ewes, and lambs. You don't do that. But these leaders are doing exactly that. A good shepherd cares for his flock. He leads them to good pasture. He does everything to ensure that they're nurtured and cared for. And it's perhaps Zechariah's hope that in God calling him to take up the role of a good shepherd that he would then spare the flock from this disaster that is predicted for them. But if he has any hope of that, that hope is immediately dashed by what God says in verse 6, where he just lays it out. I will no longer. So Zechariah is thinking, I'm taking on the role of a shepherd because God is going to have pity and, and be gracious toward this people that are being exploited. But notice what God says in verse 6. I will no longer have pity or compassion on the people of the land. But instead, I will turn every last person over to his neighbor and his king. They will devastate the land, and I will not not deliver it from them. That's a a different translation. That's from the New English translation. The ESV uh, says it even more starkly. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land. I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their land. Again, you get another connection with a scripture from the Old Testament. Read the end of Judges, if you can stand it. (laughs) Read Judges 21, and the horrendous thing that takes place in that chapter, and then the, the book ends with an ominous statement. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what God is telling Zechariah is going to happen. The people have forsaken my law. I will no longer have pity on them. So there is is a sense in which there's this great hope that God holds out for his people. We have read about it. I have said it with such enthusiasm for the first ten chapters of Zechariah. But always, always, there is this undercurrent within the book That there's always the opportunity, always the chance that God's people will not accept or receive His grace as it is lavished upon them, but will continue turning to their own way. And this is the the, the stern warning that is issued in Zechariah 11. Bad leaders produce bad followers. And and as much as the, the leaders are to blame for the Condition of the, the land, the people are them, are themselves are, are not innocent in this. They are also to blame for allowing themselves to be exploited. They are willing participants in their own exploitation because they refuse to stand up to their leaders. They refuse to hold them accountable and meekly go, as sheep often do, meekly go to their own demise. And so God will say, I will no longer have pity on them. This, was the, this happened in the captivity. This happened throughout Israel's history. Worse yet is his judgment, uh, the judgment of God, that the people will descend uh, into an even deeper state of lawlessness, which I've already alluded to. Everyone will do what is right, In their own eyes. So they will exploit one another. Their leaders, their king, will exploit them as well. And the land will be devastated. Devastated land can't grow crops, can't farm it, can't use it for anything, can't grow anything on it. So a devastated land leads to a devastated nation. I told you, (laughs) the subject matter is heavy, it's intense, it's dramatic. The conflict that is created by bad leadership is the the next point. God, looking at the, the, the scene here, Zechariah describes this, I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named favor and the other I named union, and I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed, or removed... Uh, three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they, uh, the people, detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And those who are left devour the flesh of one another. It's the fulfillment of what he's just said in verse 6. And I took my staff favor, and I broke it. annulling the covenant that I made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was paid by them or priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver, threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter, and then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Good leaders make good shepherds. If bad leaders make bad shepherds, then good leaders make good shepherds. Zechariah is a good shepherd. He makes two staves with which to tend the sheep one he names favor representing God's favor, God's blessing toward the people. He's given them a leader. He's given them someone who's going to care for them, who's going to nurture them, who's going to protect them, going to make sure that they flourish. The other he names union, representing the, the peace and brotherhood that God will cause to happen between Judah and Israel when he unites them as one nation. And things go very well at first. In one month, Zechariah goes about and he removes uh, three bad shepherds. We don't know who these bad shepherds are. Lots of speculation about whether they're individuals or whether they're nations. Some have said, well, Babylon, Persia, and the Medes. It's not clear. It's not clear because their identity is not important. What's important is that Zechariah does his job. He removes the bad leaders and he cares for the sheep. And the number three tells us that he does it completely. He is utterly successful, completely successful in his job. He tended the flock doomed to slaughter, in a sense, rescuing them from that. But what began well, as we read from the text, doesn't end well. We don't know why, but for some reason, Zechariah became impatient with the flock, with the people, and they detested him. Literally, they became sick to their stomach with his leadership. And so, you can imagine... um, Exhausted by their constant complaining, Zechariah, being human, limited patience, he does the inevitable. He quits. What the people didn't realize, and what's being acted out in this prophecy, of course, is the fact that by rejecting Zechariah as their shepherd, they are rejecting God. It goes back even further, if you will, in terms of a historical connection. In Samuel, when the people demand that Samuel give them a king, and, and Samuel says, don't do this. Right? Moses told you that if you get a king, he's going to exploit your people. Don't do this. But it was more than just that, more than beyond just the exploitation of your own people uh, that Samuel was concerned about. What Samuel was concerned about is that by demanding a king to rule over them, Between God and them, Israel was demanding that they no longer be Israel. Because the distinctive character of the nation was that God ruled them. Not a man, not an institution, not an organization, but God himself directly communicating through his prophets, through his priests, how people ought to live. And so in rejecting Samuel's ministry, in rejecting the ministry of future prophets and priests, The people were saying, we don't want to be Israel anymore. We want to be like everybody else. The same thing is taking place here. When the people reject Zechariah, they are also turning once again from God, which is why they were in captivity in the first place. And that's why he breaks the staff favor. God's been gracious to you. You are in captivity. He's brought you back so that you may flourish. You may once again see this land flowing with milk and honey that you've only heard stories about that would, that would make the hanging gardens of Babylon look like a little terrarium that you keep on your desk in the back office with a little turtle in there under a heat lamp. I'm going to make sure you have gardens that overflow and they turn their back on them. And so having rejected God as their chosen shepherd, having rejected God's chosen shepherd, God says, you're on your own. You're free. You don't have to follow my commandments. However, your independence will come at a great cost. Yes, you are free no longer to live by my rules. But you're now also free from my favor. You're also free from my protection of you against the nations. So your freedom means that God is no longer your defense as a wall of fire around you, as he promised in Zechariah 2. Your freedom means that God is no longer the glory in your midst, no longer the one who lights your way, who brings you comfort who holds you justly accountable and allows you to experience his grace. And certainly among the rights that they will enjoy as a result of their freedom is the right then to suffer the consequences of their rebellion. We saw saw this in a a, a kind of a real-life way um, when our children were very, very young uh, we lived in North Dakota, and I don't know which one of them it was. Just was very frustrated with our rule. They were very, very young, like maybe four or five. Could have been even younger than that. And just basically blurted out those words that every sort of pet, you know, petulant child does. I don't want you to be my mommy anymore. That's all it took. Okay, then. Put a little backpack on you and send them out the door. Child services, we would have been in big trouble. Because it was January in North Dakota when this happened. And as we're sending the little person out into the cold, they said, but but, but, I don't have a jacket. Your new mother will give you one. <laughs> Instant repentance. Because when we want to be free, we fail to realize that in wanting to be free, to want to be totally self-sufficient apart from God, We are truly stepping out into the cold. We are truly stepping out into the darkness. We are truly stepping out into the great unknown. Now for some, that's a great adventure. But for those who know better, who know the truth, that is the worst place you could be. And you read this section of Zechariah, at least when I read it, it's like reading a book or watching a movie where your favorite character makes a mistake. They do something wrong. And you think, It's okay. It's a movie. I like this character. It'll work out. They'll make it right. It'll get fixed. It's okay. Then they make the same mistake again. And again. And again. You think, wait a minute. Why would you trust him? Don't do that to her. Don't get in that car. Don't open that door. Don't send that email. Don't sign that paper. And they do. And they do, and they do, and they do. And when they do, they end up in a bad, bad way that they really almost cannot get out of. Reading Zechariah 11 is like that. It's a character that you like. Oh, I like this person. I like the way that they act. I like the way that they think. Why are they making these mistakes all over again? We do the same thing. So when the people rejected Zechariah, he quit. He quit because we don't like to be ruled. We don't like being told how to live. We really don't. It's like, you know, <laughs> kids will look at one another and if someone one, of the, one, you know, one little person gets bossy over another, you know, the standard reply is, you're not the boss of me. And they just do what they want to do. But here's the thing. It's like apart from God, we don't know how to live. And apart from God, we won't know how to live. That's the whole point, I think, of the book of Ecclesiastes. Where Ecclesiastes pursues pleasure. He pursues wisdom. He pursues all of these great things apart from any kind of dependence on God. That's the way the, why the book ends with that summary, that the best thing you can do is worship God in the days of your youth and serve Him all your life. Because if you try to do even great things for God, and you may accomplish them, But in the end, what do you have? Nothing. Because you'll die, and everything you work for will go to someone who has no concept of how hard you worked for it. And they may sell it, or they may destroy it, or they may remodel it, and shape it into something you never intended for it to be. We think we know how to live apart from God, but we don't. We build our lives on a foundation of sand, thinking it's on solid rock. And when the storms come, some tragedy, unemployment, some break in a relationship, some break within ourselves, and we wonder, why is it all falling apart? Well, because the foundation upon which you have built your hope and expectation is really just an idol, and God has broken it. That's a hard thing. That's a hard fact. We think freedom is living apart from God, doing everything we want, when we want it, with whom we want. But in reality, the Bible's serious about this, that's slavery. True freedom is found only when we live the way God wants us to live, that enables him to be glorified through how we live, keeping his commandments. Everything else is vanity, meaninglessness, vapor, emptiness. But if you're living apart from God, you'll like the emptiness. You'll like the vanity. And so do the people who rejected Zechariah as their shepherd. You, you may question, okay, I'm not really sure I like vanity, Pastor. Well, <laughs> why do you think people spend so much time on social media? Like, what fruit is born from that? In, really, you, you want to engage someone in a conversation about a biblical truth on Facebook or Twitter. Let me know how that goes. You want to take on the issue of gender fluidity or abortion or some other kind of hot-button issue. Tell me how that goes for you. How quickly you are shut down because of that. It's vanity. So Zechariah quits because people despise him. He's had it up to here. He does what any employee does. Surprisingly enough, he wants to be paid. So his request for payment has a double objective. He wants, first of all, to know do you still want me to be your shepherd? Even though I've quit, do you still want me to be your shepherd? He's giving them an opportunity to change their mind. God offering us a second chance. And will they recognize the fact that he did them well and led them well? He gets his answer when they measure out for him 30 pieces of silver. Now, in that day, 30 pieces of silver is a considerable sum of money. Uh, Later on, uh, Nehemiah uh, will mention in Nehemiah 5 that uh, when he came in as governor of uh, uh, Jerusalem and in the area there, the previous governors had demanded a tax salary of 40 shekels of silver. So 30 30 shekels of silver for one month's work compared to 40 shekels of silver as an annual salary they they gave Zechariah a pretty good golden parachute. Even to further demonstrate how much of an important sum this was, 30 shekels is the amount that is required in Exodus to be paid in the case of a slave that is killed by an ox. Now you think, well, 30 shekels of silver, it values human life at least at that amount, If we had no regard for the life of a slave, we would just simply say, just a slave. I'll get another one. But 30 shekels of silver, there's a value attached to that life. And so it may not sound to us like a golden parachute, but as payment for services rendered after one month, it was pretty good. Zechariah sees it differently. He refers to his wages sarcastically. Actually, the Lord, through Zechariah, as the lordly price at which I was priced by them. Anyone who has ever received their severance knows what's going through Zechariah's mind. Sometimes it's easier to pay somebody off (laughs) than keep them on the payroll. Especially when keeping them on the payroll means you've got to do what they tell you. So from Zechariah's point of view knowing that the people despised him, there was no amount of money that they would pay him that would be acceptable, because he wasn't after their money. He wanted something more. Because if they truly valued his, his leadership, if they truly respected what he had done for them, money is not the issue. Respect is the issue. Obedience is the issue. Gratitude, loyalty. We want to buy off God. So we'll write a check or we'll give time. But our heart, our mind, and our soul are far from him. That's the issue that's taking place here. Because what Zechariah is asking for is the very same thing that God asks of us. He doesn't really want our money. He doesn't even need our money. He wants our heart. He wants our mind. He wants our soul. He wants us to use the wealth that he has given to us for his glory. For sure. But it's not so much, as the old statement goes, how much money we have, but how much our money has us. Because if God has our heart, then he has everything. Zechariah throws the 30 pieces of silver into the temple to the potter. And that the temple is where the priests um, show their greatest contempt uh, for, for God. You read Ezekiel, you see all that. You also, you see this when Jesus clears out the temple. Right? And he goes in there and says, You guys have, what are you doing? I got livestock, I got chickens, I got money lenders in the temple. What are you doing here? You've turned my father's house, which should be a house of prayer, to a den of robbers. More ominously than throwing the silver away, Zechariah breaks the staff union. So whatever hope Judah and Israel have for reunion as one nation is now gone. And they will remain defeated. They will remain divided until the arrival of the one true king that we read about in Zechariah 9. Now, I know because of the 30 pieces of silver... Many, if not all, have spun ahead to that's the price that the priests uh, paid to Judas for betraying Jesus. And you're right. But there's a key difference between Zechariah being paid 30 pieces of silver and Judas. And the difference is this, and it's a big one. Zechariah quit his role as a shepherd. Jesus did not. When Zechariah was despised by the people and rejected, he rejected them. When Jesus was despised and rejected by his own, he laid down his life for them. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd knows that his sheep have gone astray, have turned everyone to their own way, and willingly receives upon his person, does Jesus, the iniquity of the very sheep that are rejecting him. When the soldiers arrested Jesus, he did not call down legions of angels, but in the words of the Apostle Peter, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. So even though there's a similarity between the 30 pieces paid to Zechariah and the 30 pieces paid to Judas, the difference is in the quality of the shepherd. And the idea here is that no human being can fulfill the role that Jesus does as shepherd. We just don't have the capacity to do that. And so they reject a good shepherd. They reject the leadership God provided. And that's not good. Because when God, when we reject the leadership we need but don't deserve... God gives us the leadership we want and do deserve, the bad leadership. And that brings us to the last point, and I'm going to move real quick, because I know the hour is getting on. Uh, Verses 15 to 17, the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd, Uh, for behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who cares, does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devour the flesh of the... Fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye be utterly blinded. You could, uh, this is the consequences of bad leadership. You could subtitle this point, Foolish people will be led by a foolish shepherd. Because God now will punish his people by sending them a foolish shepherd to preach a foolish gospel to a foolish people foolishly willing to be fooled. Say that again. God punishes his people by sending them a foolish shepherd to preach a foolish gospel to a foolish people, foolishly willing to be fooled. The Hebrew word for foolish is a word that, in today's hypersensitive, don't say anything that might offend someone or we will shut you down, culture will get you canceled. Because in Hebrew, the foolish person is a stupid person. And you can't say that. But the Bible just did. The same word appears in Proverbs 1.7, where in contrast to the fear of the Lord, the stupid person despises wisdom and instruction. The prophet Jeremiah describes people who refuse to see God as stupid children, who have no understanding. In fact, the only wisdom they have is knowing how to do evil, so... And then, and then some of you, um, just my brain works, there's an old, old evangelist back in the 1920s named Billy Sunday, former baseball player, became evangelist, he had a great line, sinner can repent, but stupid is forever. The foolish shepherd is stupid because they can do nothing but evil. And they dis- because they despise wisdom, they despise... Instruction. Now, who is this foolish shepherd, this stupid shepherd? We don't know. It's likely it's just a series of leaders that foolishly lead foolish people. And the Bible doesn't even identify the equipment of a foolish shepherd. We can make a couple of guesses, though, because a wise shepherd, well, he would wear the proper clothing of a shepherd. A foolish shepherd might wear designer clothing and sport a $2,000 pair of sneakers. A wise shepherd would carry a rod, a staff, a sling, smooth stones, and a pouch to carry them in. A shepherd, a foolish shepherd, well, they, uh, they carry an entourage. They own a private jet and perhaps are more concerned about promoting and protecting a brand than they are the kingdom of God. A wise shepherd will use a flute to call the flock, summon them back to him. A foolish shepherd will attract sheep with cool music, Slick messaging and dazzling showmanship. Foolish shepherds will put their interests above the interests of those they lead. A wise leader will serve and protect the people for whom they are responsible. Foolish leaders will gather followers who will feed their ego as well as their bank account. Wise leaders will feed their followers with the truth so they will become mature members who will contribute to the growth and well-being of their community Foolish leaders abuse their authority, lord it over others. Wise leaders use their authority to empower others to become good leaders themselves. The foolish leaders suffer then also the consequences of their foolish leadership, as do their followers. That's what verse 17 is all about. It's a very arresting prophecy, because the worthless shepherd is worthless for two reasons. He's given two arms and two eyes to care for his sheep and to protect them. He doesn't use his arm to protect the sheep, so he loses the use of it. He doesn't use his eyes to watch out for the sheep, so he loses the use of the right eye and the right arm, symbolizing strength. The bad shepherd is judged more strictly. Okay, let's land this puppy uh, I'll just end this message with the, this quote from Joyce Baldwin, who wonderful commentary in the Tyndale series. Uh, she writes this about verse 17, that responsibility for human chaos lies squarely on human shoulders. God has offered men his shepherd, but they have rejected him to their own irreparable loss. The cost of this rejection to the shepherd is depicted later behind Jesus' designation of himself as the good shepherd lies this deep prophetic understanding both of human nature and of history. You see, Jesus, in fact, indeed did bear the punishment reserved for the worthless shepherd. Undeservedly so. Remember Isaiah 53.6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. And what has the Lord done? He has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So when you come right down to it, we're all worthless shepherds. Because apart from God, we're lost. And we can't be our own shepherds, because we don't know how to care even for ourselves. But Jesus does. That's why he is the good shepherd. and Although he did not deserve it, he incurred the stricter judgment that is to be rendered upon all bad leaders and bad shepherds. He experienced the ultimate rejection so that we might experience the ultimate acceptance. He was despised by men that we might be loved by God. He bore our sin and was forsaken by God so that our sins may be forgiven by God. That's why he's a good shepherd. And who would not follow a shepherd like that? You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we... (laughs) We thank you for grace. We thank you that you hold accountable those who are given the responsibility of leadership, be they pastors or parents, husbands, wives. We pray, Lord God, that we would follow our good shepherd, that we would repent of our sin, that we would live courageously and righteously under the banner of your favor, knowing that our union with Christ is sealed forever. Father, this we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.